Immersive Work, the podcast where we have candid conversations with immersive and interactive experience makers on the behind the scenes aspects of how we make cool shit happen. This is episode one. Today on the show, we have Michaela Holland and Jake McIntyre. Uh, so yeah, my name is Jake McIntyre. Um, I'm a senior experiential producer at the advertising agency Giant Spoon. Um, so we're a full service advertising agency and I work with the experiential department. Um, we work with a variety of different brands. Um, I work as part of the New York team. Um, so some of the clients I worked with are um, just with Giant Spoon, are um, Facebook, uh, Under Armour, um, H. HBO, uh, let's see, Amex, Hilton. Um, and yeah, and then before that, I was at Palabolus, which is a dance and theater company, and I was the producer there. Um, and I did both uh, the Five Senses Festival, which is their very first inaugural um, outdoor arts festival in Connecticut, and self-produced that with them um, and presented over 60 artists. I also, prior to that, um, was a dance producer um, and produced and founded the Y Cabaret, here in New York um, that had about four iterations and presented over 60 choreographers um, emerging and all kind of all levels choreographers um, here in New York. And then, and that's pretty much it. Those are, those are kind of my highlights. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks Jake. Michaela. Yeah. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Palabalus. I'm a dancer. Oh, yeah. Yay. Oh, I'm a former dancer as well. So I'm glad to hear that. We're all um, so my dancers. And if Katya yeah. was here, she's also a dancer. Katya's yes. also a dancer. But, Wait, actually, uh, Michaela, I think you trained at one of the places I used to train at, too. Defore do- Dance? Yeah, Defore Dance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Leanne on the Leanne window. still, yes. yeah. Yeah. Two and a half hour long <laughs> oh Tuesday God, I, night class. Oh, my God. Leanne and, and Mike Esperanza every Tuesday, Wednesday. I was there, girl. I still take Mike's here in the city you on do? Mondays at Perry. Uh, I used to manage Mike's company, uh, Bear Dance Company. I love Bear Dance. Yeah, I was the manager for them for about two, three years when I first moved to New York. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I still stay in touch with Gloria DeFore. She's like always on my Facebook, like, we're so proud of you. Sorry, Chrissy, we've like totally taken over your podcast. No, totally fine. You can have your moment. Um, I can always edit it out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, perfect. I'm so excited. Sorry, you go, Michaela. Sorry, so my name is Michaela. I... My introduction. Um, I have a dance background as well, just like Jake. I started off uh, with more commercial dancing in Los Angeles while I was also going to school for journalism at UC Irvine. So it was this kind of weird parallel track where I was learning storytelling for the nonfiction ethical uh, newspaper magazine writer while also exploring what themed entertainment was through companies like Disney, SeaWorld, Legoland. I actually left school for nine months and did a contract on Disney Cruise Line, which I kind of um, I kind of adequate to like my study abroad, but also like the full immersion of immersive theater program because a ship is 2,500 crew members, 4,000 guests and three day cruises, four day cruises on and off. And the whole thing itself is like a theater production from the moment those guests walk on board the ship to the port adventures they have on shore to them coming back on the ships for dinner. Um, and the day to day activities we are putting on as performers that the guest services is putting on that the general dining staff is even putting on. And especially 
get a Disney level of quality, I add, I equate that to like almost my my like nine month intensive immersive training. Getting back home after that cruise line contract, I realized I really wanted to jump into storytelling, especially in the nonfiction realm. So I started to build myself into a transmedia journalist where I would play with video and audio and photography, but then that still didn't feel like enough and tangible enough. So then I expanded the title to more of like what I like to call transmedium and was really looking for ways of immersing and interacting people within my experiences as a journalist um, for the people I was telling their stories for and then both um, for me as a storyteller. So I ended up creating a 360 video homeless documentary that then was married with a 360 video homeless dance piece and married the two together in a really interesting way. And that kind of uh, perked the eyes and ears of people over at Time Magazine. And so that's how I ended up getting my job at Time Magazine. And I ended up doing a lot of VR and AR for Time, for Sports Illustrated, for Sunset. Um, and that's how I really became an associate producer in what we would call like XR nowadays. Um, since uh, being there, I was able to receive some incredible awards. Um, and now since then, I've worked with uh, clients like Museum of Ice Cream, um, the Silver Dream Project, which is here in New York City, I've worked with Wilderance, um, working, worked with Lance Weiler, have done my own production of a documentary, which then debuted at Sheffield Docfest. Um, and I'm currently working with Nat Geo. So I just kind of love the realm of nonfiction storytelling. And I love the realm of immersive interactive and dance and theatrical based work. And anytime the two can coalesce, amazing. But I also love the traditional work in both of those fields as well. Cool. Mm -hmm. Um, well, segueing, you've both kind of given a little bit of a start to to our theme of the day, which is uh, first time, our first time, my first time, um, and how you got started. It sounds like, Michaela, for you, your first time being aware of this world was on the cruise line. Uh, can you mm. get more specific about, like, what was there a point when you realized, oh, this is this is about the experience and, and this is more than just a show and where those lines blurred is there yeah I that's interesting that you would call that my first time I think that's really interesting yeah yeah sure so I'd say um that there was a moment which was really funny that I actually wrote a 10-page article about Disneyland because I was so obsessed with like understanding the mechanical works of the scenes behind Disneyland so it was called the cast member experience and literally two months later I booked a gig and worked on Disney Cruise Line so it was almost like I had approached it from a journalistic background and then went into it from a performer entertainment actually a cast member background and so I feel like when I got on that ship there was almost this sense of understanding that I am a part of a bigger purpose um, and in a way that we not only needed to take care of these guests on an entertainment level where we needed to make sure they were having a Disney quality experience, but there's also a layer of safety and there's a layer of of consent that happens when someone gets on a cruise ship because we're basically in the Navy. And if anything happens, like I have a muster station and I have to make sure those members get on board the ship and the type of onboarding that guests have to do when they get on board the ship, it's like a mandatory onboarding training mm -hmm. of them being like, find your muster station, find the person manning your muster station, check in using your ID. And then they're yeah. going to walk you through what happens in case the ship goes through X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And to me, like that almost in of itself, that onboarding was so interesting for me to view from a cast member point of view and then like when I started to build out immersive theatrical kind of experiences with friends or on my own or with my my like first first project with my directorial name on it which was face-to-face -face, the onboarding process to me felt so natural because I had come from this experience yeah. on a ship where you're literally getting onboarded into how not to die 
Um, and the stakes are so high. And then I think also realizing that this navigator, which is like the map of the experience for guests that they get delivered to their door each day, was in of itself this like high end coalesced produced puzzle piece where like I realized like half of the ship would be at dinner while the other half was at the show. And the swapping out period between dinner and show would always have three to five character experiences along the way. Mm -hmm. Physically, they would have people also pulling out into different spaces for adults, doing adult things into spaces. And so seeing the way that Disney mastered mindfully like moved groups of people throughout the ship in a in a safe and secure and timely manner like if you were in the last dining experience you had just enough time to get to the fireworks on the deck 14th floor in order to see the pirate show that then continued your experience into the pirate party like just understanding and seeing how that all worked I think for me and then seeing how every crew member brought a certain attitude to their to their ship, to their ship life. Like we all thought we were the most important people on the ship, which I think Mm. made it work. Not that any of us were divas, but like we all realized that we were a part of a bigger overall experience. And what I find even nowadays with independent or even like non-independent immersive works is not everyone realizes that they have to do the exact level of quality as everyone else in order to sustain the illusion of immersive interactive. If anyone allows Mm. themselves to like, fall or if anyone allows themselves to push beyond that in of itself disengages I think the illusion so I don't know it's just interesting and at some points we were all just being ourselves right yeah so, if I you, that was really powerful if you wrote that manifesto before you were hired there is there something that got you along the lines of experiential thinking and mindset before you were on the ship um, I think just having like the guests first um, I think just being a part of Disney were you a Disney employee before? Before I auditioned. Ship? No, I auditioned for the cruise ship. So very much in like your dancer realm. Yeah. Um, I was a I was a journalist who had reviewed Disney uh-huh. um, while going to school as a as a dancer, and then also like auditioned for Disney in November and was on the ship from January to September. But I think I, and and just to wrap this up, I think the biggest thing too is that with Disney there is a huge level of quality and anyone who works for Disney can speak to this just even in the way your appearances are, in the way that your time is being used in staff meetings, in cast meetings, and that kind of level of respect for the internal as well as the external guests, I think is what makes the Disney quality experience work. Like, yes, they have the money. Yes, they have this. Yes, they have that. But the detail-oriented, respectful approach that they take to not only the people they have working within their system, but also the people they are servicing in the system Mm -hmm. is, like, one of the successful recipe parts of, like, the Disney experience that a lot of people like to hate on. And I understand there's a lot of issues. But, like, for the most part, they've been doing it for the longest. So, like, just kind of give respect. I would agree with you that like the founders of immersive, like Disney yeah. did it first. And yeah. like they set the bar. Agreed. Yeah. Like the Disney world was essentially mm-hmm. the first immersive experience. Uh, yeah. That, well, I'm sure there were others you've, beforehand, but if but you've the never first read. To, oh yeah. Sorry. The first a, to do it on a mass scale. Exactly. And there's this great book. Uh, I think it's by Skylar. I always forget his last name, but it was Disney's right hand guy. Mm-hmm. He was the first Imagineer and he talked, it's called, if you dream it, uh, if you dream it, I can build it. Uh, have you read it, Michaela? She's making yeah, it. Uh, so yeah, it's good. so good. And it so just really, it, it puts you into the mindset of Disney and like how thorough with immersive, with any immersive practice that you want to, that you need to be, like how, what the, what that eye for detail can really do. Yeah. And that's what really makes it an immersive experience is that like that need for detail, yeah. you know, we're going yeah. through it. So it's a really fantastic book. 
It's funny that the two things that that you're starting off with are Disney and cruises and looking like I wouldn't have thought this earlier in my career, but now looking back, my mom was absolutely obsessed with Disney World and we'd go mm-hmm. multiple times a year to the point where I was like, well, can we do something else now? Like, oh, no. Um, it- and then after I was like, can we do something else? The secondary option was cruises. So <laughs> those <laughs> were the funny. two experiences that sort of I, I grew up around as well as yeah. I was able to do international travel. So marrying the more like cultural awareness with this sort of experiential creation mm-hmm. bubble. All right. Mm-hmm. So Jake, it sounds like you started also with a dance proscenium background. What, what would what brought you into the realm of experiential and immersive? Um, I think the first piece of, of that I like really had like a, a larger, more active role in managing that would truly be kind of as, as immersive um, was a project that I did with, when I was at Palabalos as the associate producer there um, for Ford. Uh, we helped build, we were one of their partners for CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ford was launching for their booth at CES for that weekend um, for the conference, they were, they had a brand new CMO and I think, no, I'm sorry, a brand new CEO. And he was launching kind of this new manifesto, manifesto for Ford, um, which was discussing how he was, he didn't want Ford to be a car company anymore. He wanted Ford to be a company about movement and transportation. Hmm. Um, and with the, you know, with the advent of self-driving, self-driving cars and kind of the way that that's really looking the, the way that in terms of automobile manufacturing that it's moving towards in the future, that, you know, in the next 15, 20 years, we're going to just see more and more self-driving cars. And, but so what Ford really wanted to put forward was how one Ford is looking into that um, and what Ford's doing within that world. And two, how Ford is already thinking about what what self-driving cars means for the future. So what we built with Ford was this booth where they basically were saying that it's going to make the city of tomorrow where self-driving cars mean you don't need parking spots. It means that that means there's more room for sidewalks. There's more room for public space. Um, There's more access for people who can't afford to have a car because you're just able to hop into a car that's constantly moving. It cuts down on traffic. So there were all these implications for what happens to a city. And so what they wanted to do for CES was actually create a, a little mini like sidewalk corner or a, or a corner of a city of tomorrow that, that guests at CES could walk into. So Palabalis came on. Um, our executive producer was very good friends with this amazing man, Alex McDowell, who's, uh, who runs the World Building Institute at USC, mm-hmm. which is a really fantastic cinematic program. He's the guy who designed um, Minority Report and like a bunch of other kind of like just amazing sci-fi films. Um, and so he was the cinematic partner on this. And so we had in this corner booth, um, the back walls were 16 foot LED screens um, that kind of created this whole city that was moving through it, that you could move through and there was various content coming through. And then actually within the booth itself, we had created a sidewalk. We had created, we brought in a crossing guard. We had a park, we had an ice cream stand. And then we brought in, uh, I want to say six, yeah, 16 actors, um, and directed. And basically they were just living their lives. We had two students, you know, who were studying in the park. We had a crossing guard. We had two older gentlemen who were coming through, um, and you need to use the crossing guard and we're talking about, and literally we just, we built the experience so that they were just having conversations. They weren't meant to be performative. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that if you were in the booth and you were standing there looking at something, you would hear behind you these two old men talking about how they had just taken a self-driven car 
to the hospital the day before for a checkup that they needed to go on and how much easier it was that he didn't need to bother his, you know, his daughter or his uh, son-in-law to pick him up because he could just have this car come by and get him. Um, things like that. And then we had a father and their daughter and then like just very different interactions. We had a, um, a business owner who used self-driven cars for pickups um, of various like items that she would need for the store that she was running. So we had all these little moments built in and we never really made it performative. It was always just occurring. Um, and so basically we would use those to kind of guide people. So people uh, literally watch as people when they would go over, they would see the crosswalk and the crossing guard. And even though it was just a painted decal on the floor, they would literally walk in the crossing lane. They would walk over and get in the crossing lane to cross the faux street in our fake little booth. Um, and we had a guy on a bike who would run by and make deliveries and things like that. So it really was just about creating this world. Um, yeah. Were you part of the pitch process for that idea to Forb? Yes. So um, yeah, we were there from the beginning within it. So basically Alex McDowell was already on the project for Ford and was good friends with Palabalus and reached out and said, we need someone to bring life to this booth. Yeah. We need someone who can bring people and put them in and make that a part of the space because if it's going to be a city, it can't just be screens and like scenic elements. Yeah. So we worked in partnership with the experiential agency Civic. They were the main producers of the whole booth. Um, and then we worked with Alex who was doing all of the cinematic film pieces and then Palabalus handed the pe handled the people component of this space. I'm curious because Palabalus, like that's very different from what I associate with what I know of Palabalus. So, so yeah. So Palabalus, um, really interesting time that I was there. Um, Palabalus is obviously a 50-year-old modern dance and theater company. Um, it is really famous for kind of just the touring dance ensemble and the work they do in proscenium settings. Um, but about seven years ago, they were tapped to be in a commercial for Honda, mm -hmm. or for Hyundai, I'm sorry. And they did a Hyundai commercial. And then from there, they did another commercial. And they started kind of this secondary avenue of revenue for the company um, in in concert with um, their work that they're typically doing and their touring work and their proscenium style work. So the second avenue was more commercial projects. So that they would do both commercial pieces and then also really working um, just with different brand partnerships in different unique ways. Um, whether it was creating custom content and just straight up like proscenium style format um, or doing something like this where we were coming in and we were creating movement or building and making experiences around people. So luckily in this instance, the reason we got brought in, this was a very different, definitely a different experience for Palabalus. It wasn't what we normally do. Um, but we'd been talking about it and working a lot with it. Our executive producer um, is a member of a council for, there's a big agency called Freeman, which does shipping and logistics um, for like conferences um, and you know, large events all over the world. And they have an experiential agency, Freeman XP, and they have a council of design. Um, and our executive producer from Globalis, uh was on that council and that's kind of connected with, with Alex McDowell. So it, that's how the opportunity came around um, because he realized from that that our expert, that Palabalus's expertise in movement and in theatricality obviously blended in a really nice way into experiences, um, both for performative experiences and then things like this where we're just talking about moving people. Um, so it kind of worked in that sense in that we were choreographing human beings, you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, we, we weren't looking to have this big, we weren't trying to lead guests and it wasn't meant to be an immersive piece of theater. It was meant to be an immersive experience. So we needed people 
sitting on the, sitting on a bench, acting like students studying. We wanted that just to be a real scene so mm-hmm. that it was something that you were seeing in your peripheral that just kind of built the full moment for you that you were walking into it yeah. versus you walking in and hearing a student kind of loudly project and turn and say like, today at school was so hard to, you know what I mean? Like we didn't want yeah. it to feel performative. We wanted it to feel like you had walked into a natural setting. And that's so what that you wanted when Ford approached you. Were they expecting it to be something dance-based or were you like on the same page of go. like, no, this should be something that's more pedestrian? They were very much, so the agency uh, reached out to us, Civic, and it took a little bit of time for them to understand what we were doing. They thought for a while that we were just going to like provide, you know, staff members like like a barista attendance for the coffee shop part and like actor like they thought we were like like a staffing company like providing actors and models and we were like no no we're going to script them they're going to have movement we're going to choreograph we're going to direct so mm-hmm. it took a few moments um but they really got it and i think we we it turned out beautifully um in the end um ford loved it and thought it was an amazing experience um so yeah it took a little bit of time i think to get them but they got they trusted um, a lot both in the agency who really got on the ball and just got it and understood what we were, what we are at the corner, what we were trying to create was. Um, and then the other, uh, Alex McDowell, uh, you know, really kind of kept fighting for us the whole time. And so was really passionate about this piece of the puzzle. Cool. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to Michaela. I picked up on Disney Cruise Line as being the thing that like got you in the thinking of experiential, but you mentioned a VR film that you shot. Would that be what you consider the first project you produced in immersive work or? Uh, I produced a ton of work in immersive that was like XR related. So VR, AR, I did a ton of stuff with Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Mm -hmm. and a lot of it went on to win amazing awards. And I could speak to how those things got funded via like large look like large entities such as Coors Light and mm-hmm. Canon and Nikon. And, and I think those are all really interesting, right? Like we were the first to do the 360 live stream of the solar eclipse with Time Magazine and had over 5 million views. We were the first to do the bottom top climb Mount Everest in VR, which won an Emmy and a Webby with Sports Illustrated. But for me, like, for me, like the audience of this podcast would probably be a lot of independent Uh, directors and independent immersive creators and so when you're outside of kind of the the insulation of a company especially if the company has funding and prowess and and or clients it can be a little different than like your first independent piece which like to me it's like that's like It's like losing your virginity over just like making out right like it's (laughs) truly your whole self like And to me, that piece is face-to-face, which was a piece that I was collaborated on with a photojournalist, and I was able to get funding through the Shetfield Doc Fest, which has a alternate realities commission every year through the uh, English Board of Arts, and they have a uh, Arts Council of England, there it is, the Arts Council of England. And so I was able to fund my own 
uh, piece via that, but obviously there was an application process, there was an interview process, and the piece itself wasn't just a VR 360 13-minute long film. It was also a, a full-blown installation of multiple rooms. We took you into this woman's living room, her bathroom, her dining room. It was a documentary piece, so everything we had in there was based on real-life photography, real-life videos, her real-life world, whether she had written poetry or if she had a newspaper article about her, like all those were the kinds of assets we were working with. Um, and the reconstruction of her home was done with the care of making it as close to the brown as possible. If she had weights in a corner, we would put weights in that corner. If she had a, a corner for her kids to hang out with a beanbag, we try to put a corner with the beanbag and the stickers. And like, while it wasn't to scale is again, like this idea of this art of reconstruction, as we like to say in journalists, where while we cannot recreate the scene exactly, we do our best to do what we learn from um, what we learn from research, very similar to what film does in period pieces, as well as what we learn from our individual that we're speaking to their story about. Um, and that was an hour-long experience that we had people go through one at a time, um, and it made its debut at Sheffield, uh, and it was like nonstop, no sleep for two months, because we basically built the piece between four four different time zones. I had my 360 video and my fabrication being done in California. I had one of my uh, installation producers in Colorado. I and my collaborator were in New York. And then of course the piece was being done at Sheffield. So we were liaisoning with the Sheffield Dockfest people in London. Um, and we had two and a half months to put together this piece. Um, and I could speak more about it, but that was that's what I would consider like my first time producer, director, creator it was like that all-encompassing feeling you get when you have that first project that you really own especially yeah. in this immersive world yeah um so you said you applied for a grant is that it's a commission so i believe with a commission you have to use all of the money just on the exact work they give you so i applied with a piece of work and the commission was given to me to use all the money on that piece of work i believe the difference between that and a grant would be like a grant would be a little more free of being like okay you want to do this overall theme or program here's grant money do it with however you do with it cool. um via the commission is like you need to finish and start the work yeah you know, or start and finish the work no questions asked yeah um were so there any challenges throughout that where you were like i want to do this and they pushed back on you yeah well only on one thing and it's so funny because this doesn't happen all the time, and I'm sure Jake can speak to this too. Like mm -hmm. when you have that creative like explosion in your brain where you can see every single part of it before it's even started to be play tested, and you know in your gut it's gonna work, and you know in your gut it's gonna be impactful. Hardly ever happens, but when it happens, <laughs> you're like you have to go with it, right? Yeah. Um, and so the one thing they would push back with me on was that they didn't want the actual woman at the festival for the very climactic experience. And the experience is about, this can get a little heavy. So this is now like you who are listening slash my peeps on the line, like this is going to get a little, little violent and dark. Um, the woman's face was shot off by her ex-husband. And so she wears a facial prosthetic. And so the piece was you went into her home as a guest. Her living room was like an escape room style. If you open drawers, 
photographers, if you peeked around corners, you would be rewarded. But obviously, you were still being respectful of the space. You were watching movies of her before she was shot with her husband and her daughter. You were seeing her photos on the wall. You were looking through her photo album. And then you would go into the bathroom where you would actually put on a prosthetic headset that we built from scratch eight different eye tones, eight different skin colors that would deep dive you into a 13 minute long documentary about her life, her day to day, her resiliency as a blind mother, but then also gave you background on how and why she was shot. Also her struggle being blind and raising children and Mm. things like that. And then the idea was you would take off this headset and you would have a an item based on some of the decisions you made in the living room and you would go into the dining room and with that item, that item would be like your security blanket. You would meet the actual woman you had just experienced her life through in Mm -hmm. her dining room as this sit down one-on-one, you know, one-on-ones are like a really, they're very uh, immersive. Yeah. Everyone loves one-on-ones. One-on-one. But this to me was like, it's not about the one-on-one of that. It's actually that like you and her are visiting each other in her home. And this item was going to be what is like the icebreaker for you and her. Now that, that idea of the item, the icebreaker actually came from someone at Sheffield who added that layer. But then they were like, instead of having her actually there, couldn't we just film a video based on each item? And then the people could get a video based on the item. And I was like, no, she needs to actually be there. And even if she can't be there every single hour, we have this exhibition open, we could have her there for two hours a day, but then the rest of the time is those running videos based on your item. And that Mm -hmm. was the compromise we came to, but they were very much hesitant about having her actually come. And I, I fully understand why. And there was obviously like some, some bigger things I had to deal with as far as finances and whatnot. But to me, like if this woman was going to put her life on the line for everyone to listen to and everyone to review, it was also up to her to be a flesh and blood human if she wanted to be. And she wanted Mm -hmm. to continue that exclamation or that conclusion or that climax section of her story to show that she was larger than a the actual incident of her getting shot b this idea that we were just displaying her story without her actually having a physical presence because that is a huge pushback a lot of documentaries get and then c i think just so that she felt and understood the type of energy that people were having as they were being impacted by her story and that's kind of like my whole mo is to bring more humanism back into journalism take a break for a word from our sponsors and by sponsors i mean uh, i'm gonna tell you a little bit about what we're working on at ruse this august resilience will invite participants to step into an imagined reality of the year 2032 12 years from now two years after the un sustainable development goals are due and on the brink of another u.s presidential election The experience will unfold in real time over the course of two months, both online through digital content and through live immersive events. We're kicking off our 2032 conversation series right here in New York City on February 26th. These conversations will bridge the gap between the more science and academic world and art which can bring a more human and relatable perspective to these complex local and global issues surrounding our future everyday lives. We'll be in New York on February 26th, San Francisco on March 7th, and 
Austin, Texas on March 16th. Since we'll also be traveling to LA and Bonn, Germany for conferences, we're hoping to add events in LA, Berlin, and London. So stay tuned for updates on that by following us at Resilience2032 on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you're in any of those cities, we'd love to connect. So please reach out. So you, this is where this podcast will be different from other podcasts. You mentioned some financial and other things. If you're allowed to talk about any of those things that came up, can you speak to some of those issues? Yeah. I mean, the commission, the commission covered a lot, but didn't cover everything. And so I started Indiegogo as must, as most people do, like an Indiegogo or Kickstarter just to get us there. Cause mm-hmm. Sheffield covered a lot of incredible things. Like they actually covered the construction of the walls, which is uh, ginormo. Um, and they also gave me a lot of boots on the ground docent, um, work or volunteers. And they also kind of provided me with a lot of infrastructure and, uh, they allowed me to stay at the hotel and they paid for that. But like there were a lot of things they also didn't pay for and that the commission just wouldn't cover. So I did an Indiegogo, raised about $4,500 there, was hoping to raise closer to 5K. And then <clears throat> and then the rest of it kind of came out of my wallet. And that was totally okay because it's your passion project. And when you get like a chance to do this incredible three installation piece at a tiny doc fest that everyone in the documentary realm knows about and like with hopes that it was going to be the next big um, the next biggest installation at Sundance for its American premiere and then Tribeca mm-hmm. and like had all these people speaking with me and then hopefully was going to have it as like a more permanent museum installation. Like saw it as a investment in the future of my storytelling to not compromise on the quality of what I was doing because maybe the finances weren't always going to be comfortable. And so mm-hmm. I did have to spend a little bit of my own personal funds to get it through the door. And that's the reality that I think every independent and creator deals with, right? Like not thing I do is like me giving my own money. It's basically me trying to like get clients money and help clients and like make sure that I'm safe, but I have side hustles. Like I teach group fitness and like, you know, I pick up small gigs here and there for event production when I need to. Mm -hmm. That's how I supplement what I do. And then like with face to face, it was like a no brainer. The like difference between here and here was $1,200 of my own money. Like it was going to happen. So, um, are you still doing those side hustles? Yeah. Yeah. Like even, so like my current day to day is I'm working on a, um, a big production with Nat Geo, which I can't really go into. Um, I just wrapped on a, on a cruise ship, uh, script that I helped write like an interactive narrative script. Um, I work in an event production. So I just recently did the a med station for the New York marathon. And then I teach group fitness classes. Um, and that's really nice because I can scale those as much as I need to and pick up a ton of classes on more dead weeks versus scale them back and only do my weekly, like two to three classes when I have like busier weeks in my freelance production and creative realm. Um, and then that also leads me a little bit of time to like collaborate and also apply for my own personal passion projects to different grants and things like that. So that's like my day to day. And that's how I kind of get by like no one that I know of in my brain is only doing immersive interactive full board even like my friends who are in the vr ar industry are also doing like special effects and like computer generated graphics in order to kind of like sustain their small businesses or their freelance um their freelance companies jake are you full-time at giant spoon i am a full-time employee yeah so i do this 
all it's 120 of my percent of my time. So I no longer, um, I kind of dropped a lot of the side hustles and other side projects. Um, when I signed on here, yeah. uh, I was freelance for a year with them. Um, but I was pretty much permalance with giant spoon. Um, so I had, I, I started freelancing. I did a few other gigs, worked with them and then really just worked straight through, uh, for a year. And then they brought me on full time. So did yeah, you so have was, a side hustle before you were, Oh my God, I had so many side hustles. <clears throat> I worked in my side hustles when I first came to New York. I sold merchandise for Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I managed their dance company. I would do freelance events. And then I freelance, I produced my, what was weird was, I mean, I had my full-time job and then um, I had, and then I was producing on the side, but I, I lucked out my first like, big productions that I, that I did outside of like the stuff I did for Bear Dance Company. Um, I got a theater to pay me money to do it. So that worked out really well. Um, it was pretty magical. So I was able to have them basically, I had a partnership with this theater where I kind of got, a li- they would give me a little bit of like seed money that I would just basically use that to like, I just didn't take any of the actual, I mean, make any profit on it and just put all that money back into the show just to make the show. And this was um, for an immersive piece or for a traditional theater piece? It was kind of in the middle. So I did a, the, it was a program that my friend and I started called the Y Cabaret at 14th mm-hmm. Street Y Theater. Um, so I started working with them when I first moved to New York. Um, a friend of mine worked there. And then my one of my previous careers um, before like moving into more immersive and experiential was I was a booking agent for, not for tours. Uh, so I booked musicals, plays, um, contemporary music, uh, and dance. Uh, so I used to book shows for Kinky Boots, The Sound of Music, Dirty Dancing, and then also like Kronos Quartet, Eighth Blackbird, Diablo, Spectrum Dance Theater, um, Jonah Beaucaire. So kind of a wide variety of dance and theater. Um, and so when I moved to New York, this theater, we were talking, there's a big conference called APAP, which is Association of Performing Arts Presenters. Um, and so it's the time in January where all of those festivals happen in New York. There's Coil, there's Under the Radar, which are the more like theatery um, ones. And then there's the APAP conference that happens. And there's a number of showcases all over New York. Um, and so this theater, the 14th Street Y that my friend worked at, they wanted uh, to do a showcase, but they didn't really know anyone in the APAP world. Um, and since I just worked in it for the last three years, they brought me on to kind of produce that. But I slipped in that I wanted to do something else with them. And so this show, the at the Y Cabaret, became this other production that um, showcased seven choreographers, but we built in the pieces um, to kind of interact and happen around guests and with guests so that there was food and drink and there was, a, there was a, an MC kind of, you know, guiding them and bringing them into games and getting them to enjoy and kind of be more involved in the work than just a mm-hmm. typical proscenium, like lights go on, lights go off. So our whole goal was to not do that. We were like, the light should never go on and then up and then the next piece starts. They need to flow and like, they need to all be woven together so that the audience is is literally in a show from the beginning until the end, even though we're trying to show seven different choreographers, different pieces. Um, So we created this kind of evening performance piece through that. So that was kind of the first, um, that was my like my side hustle project that I did for four years. Um, that was a little bit immersive and a little bit just kind of a straight theater piece. Now, when you were for, first building that relationship, were they looking for someone to produce work in their space? And yes you and no. Provided that yeah. answer or totally. So they 
they basically had people that were pride in their space. They were trying to get more people to recognize that they have this great theater space hiding inside of the community center. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not something you might notice. So like a lot of people, if you don't know the 14th Street Y, um, they have this amazing black box, huge space. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it's available for renting or, you know, and they'll do, they, and for productions for off-off Broadway productions. Um, and so they were trying to get more people into the space and be aware of it. And it also back in the 80s and like late 70s, early 80s was a big space for dance. Um, and it was known for that. Like Anna Sokolo performed there a bunch and there was a lot of like different downtown dancers who were doing work there. So the artistic staff at the theater were like, no one from the dance community knows that we exist anymore and no one ever comes to us to do shows. So we really want to just make sure that the dance community knows about us and that other actors and performers and producers know about our space. Mm-hmm. So I was like, great, give me a little bit of money and then you can keep all of the ticket sales. So basically you'll make back whatever you pay me, but I need the money up front. So you can, if we sell out, great, you've made all your money back. If we don't sell out, you've lost a tiny bit of money, but you've got a bunch of people in the doors who you've never have seen before for a cool event. So that's how we built it. And it was great because they won. I think they did, they really loved it for the the last, the four years that we had the time and the ability and the energy to do it. Um, So we would do it over, we, we worked with them to pick dark days. So I did Mondays and Tuesdays when they typically didn't have rentals in there. So like the theater is already dark. So they, we co-partnered to produce the show. So they gave me resources and then they gave me some initial starting money that I was able to use to pay our choreographers um, to be there and to pay for other, you know, just components and parts of the evening, um, which was awesome. Cause I love, I always, you know, it's, it's always great when you can make a power, a passion project and we can all be in. But for a lot of choreographers and dancers and early emerging actors out there, so much work is like for exposure. Yep. And yeah. I was like, I just want to get anything. Like I, you know, I would, I would call friends and people and choreographers and be like, this is not the money that you deserve, but it's literally all I can offer you. And it's something, and I hope that you'll want to do this. And it became yeah. great because we built the show with the idea in mind that because we wanted it to be immersive and to be fun, we were like, we have a full lighting plot. So for the art, for the choreographers, it became a great way to test out work. So we got a lot of choreographers who were like, I've never had this piece shown before. I've always wanted to like test yeah. it and try it and figure it out and see if it's good. And then we paid a great videographer to come and film the work for them. So they would get quality content from the shoot. Um, they had, you know, a few comp tickets and then we could seat about like 80 people. Um, And then we had food and wine there. And then um, we had a great lighting designer to help build it. And so then the the venue loved it because they got people in on nights that they were normally dark. They got to invite donors and other like higher execs within both the 14th Street Y community at large um, and show them that the 14th Street Y was involved in like supporting the local community and helping dancers. So like the ethos of the mission worked really well for them. Um, and they had donors who loved it and the president loved it. So it became this really great opportunity for them to kind of like show community involvement, um, within the arts and then to highlight a bunch of, you know, different artists and things like that. So that was my first project with them. So when you, when they did, they gave you a small amount up front, did you propose that number or did they say like, this is what you can have and you figured out what you could do with that number? I did math. I basically like looked at what they typically charge for most shows, the amount of seats that we would probably have, which gave us the kind of number that if we were to sell out, you know, at 
80 seats a night at $20 um, for two nights in a row. And we could possibly go up to 100 seats, you know, with standing. So therefore, you know, you know, so we played it kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I put that money in front of them and then was like, and you've already got the space, you've already got these people on staff, you're not hiring anybody extra, they're yeah. available to work. So you're not losing anything else. So this was, I put that number in front of them and then they agreed. Can you tell us what that number was? What did you ask for? I don't remember. And it was only a few thousand dollars. It was not big. Um, it was, I, I want to say it was like $3,000 per night very tiny. or per week per the, it was only a two day show. So it was oh, just so a little only- two day run. But yeah, it was just two nights that we would make the little show mm-hmm. um, and make it happen. So it was a smaller thing. And we did it like two, we would do it like one weekend and then like we would do it another, um, like in a few, six months later, we would do another one and then another one and things like that. So we made it a small, like, I think it happened all of, and then we would do four shows total each run. So like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or like a Friday, Saturday, two mm-hmm. shows in the day, things like that. So it was small. Um, and that was part of, I think, what helped make it possible was that it was a small nominal number for them. Yeah. Um, and it was just an easier way to kind of build something small. It wouldn't have worked for like a real big actual immersive show. Yeah. But um, the other project that we did that was that was a little bit more immersive was I did um, with Bear Dance Company, worked with Mike Esperanza to create the show Venomous um, that he produced over at LaGuardia, which was a big partnership through the CUNY Dance Initiative. And that was a larger grant that he applied for and we got um, and built out a whole show within that theater. So that was a grant money, you know, piece. Um, and we actually got that theater to renew us and bring us back in a year later. And same thing, we neg- I worked with them to negotiate um, how much they were going to pay us based off of how much money you can possibly make and like yeah. my, and how much we need to be in the space. And so looking at those kind of things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Cool. So now I want to take it like way, way back um, for you, Jake, it'll probably be not immersive related, but um, what are some of the like baby, baby experiences that qualified you for, for your professional jobs? Um, so like what landed you that, how did you, for, for Michaela, the, the time, the job at time, um, what are some of the things that you did earlier that made them go, oh, this girl, we can trust her? <laughs> Oh, I just want to say one last thing about finances and uh, Jacob, the exact same thing you were touching upon. I really think when it comes down to a project, the right place, the right time and the people who need something is like the three things you need. Like if you feel like you are pulling and pushing for funding and you are just not making it work and it is like becoming more of a headache and less of a passion project or less of something you're enjoying because the finances are at its root, then maybe just hold off on the project and wait even just a couple months to see if you can potentially get a new venue, a new partner, a new whatever. Because I, I personally believe every work of art is meant to be shown in the world. But if you are running it's up about against, the right space, yeah. yeah. No, I, I've had so many friends who've also created projects, and I remember another friend of mine found a bar that was like, we're super dead on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and they have a big enough space. And she was like, what if we made a show here? And they're like, that sounds awesome. So it's like being, you have to think outside of the box, you know what I mean? And like, even this theater, like that I asked and just asked the questions of like, why don't you guys show dance anymore? And like, oh, we want to, but none of us are dancers. We don't know anybody in the dance community. And I was like, let me help then. So it's about like, you're a hundred percent, Michaela. It's like, if the money's not coming, it's not that you're not, you're, I mean, sometimes it can be that your work maybe needs to change and you need to up and make the work better. 
but it also can mean that you're not looking in the right spot and you've got to be more creative, but yeah. there are opportunities, but it's really about that, like finding the right partners, you know, like don't push a square peg in a round hole and like really look for like, okay, this work belongs, you know, in an outdoor space, where is a park and who do I call at the park to see like how we could create this cool, awesome family experience. And it needs to be the right setting. You have to align your goals then and yeah, be willing to compromise with the organization, which is fine. And it's a way to get it out there. Um, but you have to think sometimes in that way of like, how can I, how can my, if I want my vision to come to life in some form and manner and want some kind of money towards it or some notoriety or some kind of promotion, then you need to figure out ways to partner with another organization or to get funding. And you've got to work a little bit with what they look for, but you've got to find what they want and solve that problem. Yeah. That's yeah. Totally- and usually it comes really naturally. Like if I want to do a piece in the park already, cause I like want to do this park inspired piece as a choreographer, as a theater, yeah. theater director, then it's like, all right, which park would be inspired by me being there. Yeah. yeah. And, and if there is, if, if someone something. needs a park, Hunter's point is always down. They're amazing. Yeah, you're right. Hunter's point. <laughs> Yeah. Hunters, oh, where's oh okay, and that, oh, yeah, that's they like everything. Dance. They have the big dance yeah. festival. They do every yeah, year in C two, bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I performed in C two a few years ago. Oh yeah, I was told that I couldn't be part of it because I didn't live in Long Island City. <laughs> you have to there. You have to, there was like some loophole I think with that too because I have a few friends who've done that where like basically someone lives in Queens, um, or you hire somebody in your cast and then it works out. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. So before we like continue on this conversation, Sorry. no. Um, yes. How, what are some of the ways that you found those kinds of relationships? So like Hunter's Point, did you uh, is one, but um, yeah, like there are restaurants and bars that have dead nights that need people. I know Cornelia Street Cafe, may it rest in peace, was one of mm-hmm. them. Um, are do you, yeah? What are some ways that maybe you have or you know of other people who've had these serendipitous conversations where it's like this venue has a need and you can fill that need. So, so my theory is whenever you're trying to get into an industry or into a, like a, a niche or a sect is you become the nerd of that industry. So like yes. the way that I got into VR wasn't because I just suddenly went up and was like, I'm going to get into VR. I like became the nerd of VR. I Googled every VR company in LA. I walked into every door and was like, Hey, you're two bit circus. You've done this, this, and this. Can I get your staff Starbucks and become your intern? No. Okay. Next one. Hey, you're um, missing pieces. And you've done, you know, and I became knowledgeable about, the industry that I wanted to break into or partner with or be a part of. And that's kind of, I think how I then fell into this professor at USC who found me the job at time magazine, right. was like, he was like, this girl knows her stuff. She's a total nerd about VR. And like, we want people who are enthusiastic about what they're doing and and haven't have a clear understanding of who they are. Not like a pitch, but I was like, I'm, I'm an enthusiast about VR who wants to do nonfiction, social impact storytelling using immersive mediums. Right. And he was Mm -hmm. like, great, let's go see where we can get you something or get you a partner of some sorts. And like, that's what got me the job at time. And then, then leaving time and being like, okay, I want to do immersive and interactive like documentaries and like going and googling every single like immersive interactive documentary there is out there and who's doing them and who's showing them Shetfield's showing them Shetfield has this commission let me go apply to this commission and then even now being in the immersive theatrical world now it's like every single time no pro or no proscenium has like a newsletter or if I can go and cover them as a social correspondent and get into tickets for free and see new work and see new venues and talk to those venues or talk to the people who created this work about, you know, um, 
this thing on Governor's Island and what did they apply to and why did they get there? And just like gathering these like little tidbits of knowledge as a nerd, but also as now like needing to be knowledgeable about my industry. I gather a tidbit and then I remember someone else has a tidbit. And my favorite thing to do is actually connect those people. Mm -hmm. And as you become that person that's starting to like connect the lines between people who might not know each other or venues or partners that don't know each other, then you become that person that they kind of see and understand. And when they see you for a partnership or they see you for a potential piece of work, they come to you and go, Hey, by this way, like you made this connection for me way eons ago. Would you be wanting to, will you be willing to, are you interested in? And those are always like the ways that I like to keep myself moving and grooving and finding and sustaining through an industry versus other ways I'm sure there is out there. I couldn't agree more with Michaela. Um, just like on the being a nerd, um, thing and it kind of extends to both like looking, you know, just get it, becoming a nerd about what the, what you're hyper-focused on. Like if you love, like whether it's the immersive theater, whether it's dance, whether it's whatever, knowing that field and knowing the people who are working within it and around, and then also looking at where they're working and then also starting to become aware of like, what are the problems in there and what can you solve for? Like yeah. if all of the work is always happening here, like part of what I felt was successful with some other pieces and with like with globalists that we were trying to solve for was people were looking for things that were dynamic and new and exciting and had an artistic like edge and quality to them that had value that offered value. So when we, when I talked with, with brands and with companies that were, you know, thinking about it, yeah, you could go and pick up any dance company or call a staffing company to give you models or dancers. But that just meant that there were going to be pretty people who could move standing there. That wasn't, that wasn't going to give them a, a thorough narrative, you know, design to the experience or things like that. So it was really about kind of like looking for problems and thinking how you could solve them within your own medium. Mm-hmm. Um, and wherever you are trying to find out like the, what are ways that you could play with this space? What are ways, you know, like that you could do something here? And then uh, on the nerd route, I'm the biggest fan of I LinkedIn stock, everyone on their mom. Uh, I love to Google stock and find out things and just look up like who works here? Who's the person that does this? How do I know them? Like, I love LinkedIn for that. I love Twitter for that. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing way to find the people who are, there's always someone behind the scenes who's picking, who's the curator at, said park or something like that and finding those people and finding ways just to get them on the phone or send them a note and just be like, people want ideas. They want cool projects. Thank so you. you have to just get, yes, I love that tequila. They do. <laughs> um, so that's the thing. You have a great idea. Oh, that was um, I think that, you know, if you have a great idea and you see it somewhere, then you need to go and be a nerd and find out who the people are that own that space, that run that space, that are, you know, deal with special events or community programming or anything that you think like aligns and would make, and also that gives them, that doesn't just benefit you. I think the biggest problem is a lot of friends and creators that I've talked about stuff, they haven't gotten work out because the work that they're thinking of only benefits them. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, 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 my, your work needs to serve another way. Like it needs to bring people into the space or it needs to totally. promote the brand for what I do, things like that. Or I get to make art or hire my friend. Like what I love is getting to hire my friends for work that I'm doing. I did an event for Under Armour and we built out this entire secret laboratory for Under Armour in New York that was all about learning about this new product. What was that? I went to that. Oh, you did? Yes. You came to Rush. Thank you. I'm so glad. It's amazing. Glad you came to that. So yeah, 
Yes, I love hearing that. Thank You're you. Um, so yeah, I built that um, and was the lead producer on that. And I worked with a good friend of mine, Minute Zero, who's a really amazing um, immersive theater company as well. And I hired, and, and they're good friends of mine. Um, and I said, I need trainers. I need people who can move and can like be these secret lab technicians who can put people through paces and make them work out. And they're like, great, we're all dancers. And all of our dancers happen to be group fitness instructors on the side. So they hired, so we brought in these, all these amazing dancers and they led people to these experiences. Um, and so we were, we could combine tech and things like that, but it was an awesome experience because I got to bring in my friends who love to create work and give their friends work. Um, and they got to bring a cool artistic angle because they had movers and actors yeah. in the space. Um, but it was for a brand and we were serving the brand's purpose, but it was still an interesting experience for all them. And it was money. Exactly. It's the opportunity to help actors who I love and dancers who I love do something fun and have a good time and service a brand. Um, and the brand loved it because they were like, these people know their stuff. They could, they look great. They're moving great. People are having a blast. And like, that's, where it's magic. It all worked together. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the venue, we, we got this venue that we worked with and I mean, obviously we paid money for it, but they, they worked with us really well because the venue is like, we love all these people coming in. We love big brands coming into our space. We're an open retail space. That's like empty at the moment. So we want people to come in here and see it so that we can. And literally during our event, they're showing buyers walking them into this space and saying, look at how cool this space is. You could transform it into anything. Yeah. Look at all the people walking off the street, coming into this cool experience. Don't you want your store here? So like it worked for everybody. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yes, everyone got paid because the brand, but the brand was happy because the actors were great. The actors were happy because they were getting paid. The, you know, we're paying the venue, but we're happy with the venue because it looks great. And the venue's happy because we made their things look great. So it's about finding that mix and like putting them all together. Um, because you find what people want and being that nerd. Yeah. And to be honest, that's what makes you a good, produ an amazing producer, a great producer is that is, is yes, you know how to budget. Yes. You know how to like, you know what you're doing, but a great producer is someone who understands what everyone needs, make sure those needs get fulfilled. And if there is like an open or if there's a vacuum or if there's something that someone else isn't seeing, they're filling it in either with someone they trust and they have mm -hmm. worked with before, or they're filling it in with what they know is going to be a solution. And that might not yep. necessarily be someone they've worked with before, but it could be a solution that someone they love and know recommended to them. So that's what makes a great producer. And then I also fully believe what makes good work, whether it's immersive, interactive, nonfiction, and fiction, is you as a creator, as them as the talent, is recognizing the audience and serving mm -hmm. the audience. Mm -hmm. yep. That's what makes good work. And I think work that, that fails to recognize and serve the audience, but fails to also give purpose and understanding to the audience... Because you can have good work that's not necessarily serving the audience, but it could be serving them in a different way of like expending purpose or creating a larger entity or understanding about mm -hmm. something. But in again, if it's not serving them, giving them something to chew on, giving them a role to play, giving them an understanding of what they can do with their bodies or what they can do with their hands or minds, then it's then that's when you become when that's when the work becomes harder and that's when the work becomes not as enthralling and not as impactful. And that's when you don't have as successful experiences with clients or with partners or with venues yep. or with collaborators. Yeah. yeah. So 
Continuing on that trend, was there a time where you thought an idea would totally serve the brand or the client, but they were not on board for it and you had to like pitch them and convince them that it was something that would work? I mean, I know you talked about having the woman live in your in your project, but that wasn't necessarily for them. That was for yeah, like what what's a time that you had to like convince someone that this is the right choice? And how did you do that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think it always comes down to narrative for me. Like, that's what I feel like I'm always fighting for is like, I'm like, that's cute. And that's interesting. But is this serving the narrative? Or is this serving the world building? Or is this serving Mm -hmm. storytelling? And so whenever I had come to a point where I feel like I need to push back, and this is on any production, it's when I'm trying to say this isn't staying true, or this isn't staying coherent, or this isn't staying... um, Uh, there's another good word for it, Uh, to the narrative, to the storytelling, to this character, to this moment, to what we're trying to do overall. Like to me, it always, I will always fight tooth and nail for the narrative. I will always fight tooth and nail for the authenticity of the experience. And when things start to feel fabricated in a way that's not necessarily just fabrication production, that's when I start to push back. And that's when I I would hope people listen to me. But other than that, like I'm a pretty Mm -hmm. easy collaborator. I don't necessarily feel like I see things that other people don't like. I'm more than Mm -hmm. welcome welcome criticism and people looking at it a different way, a different point of view. Um, So that's the only time I really feel myself digging my heels in the ground and be like, let's talk about this narrative. Let's talk about the consistency of this thread. Let's talk about why this world building we, we took so much time here is now starting to crumble over here because we're not focused or we're not thoughtful or someone wants to try to do something here that I feel like is pushing against this over here. Yeah. Do you have any examples, Jake? Um, more so when I was at Palabalus, yeah. I mean, the nice thing at Giant Spoon, I mean, we definitely, we pitch people all the time on awesome, immersive experiences, you know, and have a lot of great ideas. And sometimes, you know, clients go for it. Sometimes they, they can't, or they, they just don't, it's not the right vibe for them at, at that time. And so we hope for it another time. Um, but like for ones that I can speak, I mean, I think that the, the Ford one um, with, with Palabolus, we you know we had to, there were times when they were like, I don't know, we should cut these characters or we should bring this down or we don't need all of these or we should just make them all have like, they really wanted everyone to have like a very real role, like only the the cafe person and only the, the crossing guard because they have like functions. And mm. we were like, yeah, yeah, but they need people to be using those functions. So we need the old men crossing the street because that is their function. They're part of the story. Like mm-hmm. they, that we need that aspect and we need just people that are there and kind of giving that are that are making us making a place we want to make it a place that was the yeah. whole goal um so that there were characters that were more necessary and less necessary but that 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 balance was what kind of made it an actual place um so we really fought for that and then other times you know there's always a lot of times we would do shows we did a show for an oil company in argentina and another show for porsche in china and there were constantly things that they were like we hate this scene we want to cut it we hate this part we want to cut it and we would be like, we would really be like, no, this has to happen. We can modify it. We can, we'll, we'll work with you to find the right thing to be in here. But like the scene is happening. It needs to happen because there's something vital about it and it carries this story on. So like, what would you like to see instead? What don't you feel in this yet? So really working around that. And I think it goes, it's all about asking the right questions. Um, mm-hmm. So when someone says like, we don't like this, it's about going, okay, what don't you like about it? Yeah. And not just, not just agreeing, not a problem. We'll just cut it. It's like, no, 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 no. 
tell me you don't like it because of X. It doesn't, it doesn't feel, it does not hitting right. Maybe it's the actor. Maybe the actor's not delivering the lines right. Maybe in this scene, it's the colors. It's something in the set. Like we can find the thing and we'll work to keep changing it and keep the dial because, you know, at this point to what Michaela's saying, it's all about the story and the narrative. So if it's a vital part of the story, you know, you need to keep it. And then there are also things where you have to just, a lot of times there are things the client hates and you, we just get rid of it. You know what I mean? You just let it go and it can move away and that's fine. Yeah. Um, we had a, a piece that we were doing for Facebook with Palabolas and we had two pieces that we were doing and the one piece was so much better and I, it looked, it looked so good on this face and I was so sad we did it. Uh, it was, and they cut it right before, like, it's just not going to work for the event. Like we want to do the second piece only. And we were on site teching the pieces and they were like, the flow of the evening is just not work. It's just, it's too long. We have to cut it for time wise and this whole thing. And we were like, it was frustrating, but it was like, you had to be like, that's fine because we still cut the second piece and that still had a really beautiful moment and they wanted to cut that down. And we were like, we definitely were there's no world in which we're cutting that piece down. It's not becoming less. It's staying at the 10 minutes that you've agreed upon. And we're like, that's, that's it. But it, it makes you feel better to cut the three minute, really great piece that we thought totally worked and made a fun entrance. We'll let it go. We'll let it die. And we'll, it'll, it'll live on in another day. And we, we did, we, we brought that piece back, you know, like later on that year at another event and whatever, but we got the chance to create it for Facebook. And that was the great part that we got the ability to like make it and didn't yeah. get used. And then we, 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 we riffed off of that piece and made new pieces from it that became this really cool thing that we then were like, Oh, this trick that we were going to do for that piece it's something else. So yeah. I think that's going to be important thing of like letting some things die, but really fighting and asking the right questions to kind of bring the client on and get them to see your vision. They need to feel a part of it. And once they feel a part of the vision mm -hmm. and a part of the art, because they ask the right questions and then we dug into it with them, then they love it. Then they're hooked. They feel artistic. <laughs> they like that moment. And that's what it's about. It's about like letting them see into the side of it and getting them to feel like it's more than, I mean, for me, that it's more than a marketing event, that there's something that we're making something and building something cool. And there's a, there's a deeper story that we're trying to commit versus just buy or sell or watch, you know, this thing and think it's beautiful, like feel something. Yeah. I have two examples of that. So like when we were doing the bottom to top client in Mount Everest, everyone was like, it needs to only be this many episodes. And I was like, I know it's more work to make it more episodes, but it needs to be more episodes. And I think it was like, we originally had a trilogy and I was like, no, it needs to be at least four pieces. Because if you look at the narrative, if you look at the way they're trying to edit it, the way they're editing the three pieces does not give the narrative itself time to breathe. And they were like, whatever, Michaela. And then finally, like the edit kind of the, the, like the strength of the edit was dying and they brought the edit in house and they were like, all right, Michaela, you ready? And I'm like, I already have it scripted out. And I was like, here's all four episodes. I'll go edit it in two weeks and we're going to go in and out. Yeah. You know? And like, sometimes that it. happens where like, you're calling it, you're calling it, you're calling it and no one's listening to you. And then it comes down to you in the last minute to like do what you say you think is going to work. Cause sometimes that happens as well. Jake, I'm sure you've been on those productions where you're like, you're seeing something like from the beginning and no one is like, hearing you and then like last second they're on set and they're like oh my god you're right like this doesn't work at all and you're like great i have a backup plan but i have to stay up yeah. all night to make it happen but <laughs> i already knew this was gonna happen exactly that happens a lot and then another thing too was um like when a client doesn't get in there when the client doesn't deliver on what they are going to do you have to push back as well so for example like we did this huge map at the um 
uh, education above all in the New York Public Library, and it was this augmented reality reality app, and this was with a marketing agency I was freelancing for, and we did these iPads that kind of triggered these little pictures, and the and the the, the client thought they were going to get these full videos of like these kids running around and doing all these incredible things with education, and I was like, that would be great, but there's like 200 plus initiatives that we would need 30 second to 45 second long videos from in order to make that happen. Do you have these 30 to 45 second videos from these initiatives. Yeah, 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 we'll get them to you, we'll get them to you. Okay, great, well, I'll start to like pull in all of the assets for the photos that you've provided, mm -hmm. but we need these videos. Less than a week to go, no videos. I'm like, great, do you have more photos and do you have a log line? They're like, oh, that's a great idea, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna make a photo slideshow using the photos that you have in the photo gallery and a log line that's going to appear in real time because we don't want this we don't want audio dealt with anyway we don't want headphones it's all audio agnostic mm -hmm. it'll be subtitled little photo slideshows oh that's a great idea great because you know the creative has to change when the client doesn't deliver the assets that they yep. claim they're going to deliver and you as a producer especially in the immersive interactive world have to have a good plan because the show's going to go on no matter what the map was already made the pictures were already done like we had to have some sort of asset that built in there and they were expecting videos so a slideshow is a video but it's not these videos they had expected at the beginning but because they ran themselves up into the deadline you gotta do what you gotta do right so that's where you're pulling back and pushing that's like i think two good examples of you having to come in and save the day in a way but it happens in this world yeah Totally. Cool. Okay. So we have two and a half minutes left <laughs> in our, in our second zoom call. Um, as you're talking about client work and that kind of thing, I'm curious, what are some of the values that clients have bought into in experiential work? And if you can just like, like very like simple ideas of like, they want, to like is there a better but is how can you articulate the values that some of the clients are looking for and what those oh, yeah in some way maybe that's not the most specific question you want the values that they bring to immersive or no that they what, are looking what, for like as oh. you're pitching them what what are things that you can speak to that like i can provide x value to you as a creator so for I mean, I think it's something that's different. People are looking for difference. Everyone's seen a commercial advertisement. People have seen things on the web. So this is something that is unique. Um, also, the benefit of immersive is that if you buy a web banner, your web banner shows up for two seconds and it's one of 18 million web, web banners that someone's going to see when they're sitting on their computer and going through stuff. Or it's one of eight commercials they're going to see in between before a YouTube ad, et cetera. Um, but when I build an immersive experience, an attendee is going to come in there. And if they're in there for 20 minutes, they're spending 20 minutes inside of your brand. Nothing but your brand everywhere. Nothing but you as a client. They're there. They're in that space. They're completely dedicated to you for an hour, for 45 minutes, for 20 minutes, for 10 minutes, however long the experience is. But it's a holy, like a truly a wholly immersed experience yeah. for that client. Um, and that you get to share their story in a way that's unique um, and create kind of a, a fun, some of that word, I don't use the word fun, I guess, um, a, a special memory that's not just an ad, that's not just uh, a billboard, that's not just a print. You know what I mean? That's, that's just the one thing they're going to read, something that they're going to have tangible evidence. They're going to remember the smell, the feel, the sounds, the sights, et cetera, that, that coalesced into that one moment, hopefully. Mm -hmm. 
Um, clients, I mean, they bring the value of their brand, right? A Coca-Cola mm-hmm. has different value than a Facebook and a Google and like, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the beauty of what they bring is they don't know what they want. And so I think it's a job as a producer or a creative director to help flesh that out, especially on an immersive interactive side. That's really you as a producer or as a creative director really has to be clear about how to integrate the client's voice, the client's needs, the client's wants into the experience that you are building or creating for them. And in turn, I think you as a producer or a creative director should have the values of, is this seamless? How is the onboarding? How is the offboarding? Is the content I am doing or producing slightly nerve wracking, scary, uh, could be a little, uh, disturbing, um, can be really heavy. And if so, how am I making sure I have safety protocols around that? Do I need to ask the audience for consent throughout this experience? If so, how am I asking for consent? And I think these are the things that the brands are not thinking about. They're thinking about the wow, the yes, the buy aspects of your experience. And so you as a producer and a creative director should bring the values of human to human interaction, of human connection, as well as making sure that people feel safe and they feel like there's a safety every moment of the way they're through the experience. And it can be super implicit as it can be explicit. And it can be done very much in a bespoke way. It could be as simple as giving everyone a safety word. It really depends on what you're building, why you're building it, and when you're building it and who you're building it for. But yeah, that's what I would say as far as value systems go. Mm -hmm. Are there any examples that you would point to? Sure. With face-to-face, we had everyone fill out a Google form and that Google form allowed me to know if the person had ever been through a PTSD type of trauma with guns. And if so, I gave them a version of the VR experience without the gunshot. If someone came in through my experience that was deaf, blind, or hard of hearing, I had an optimized version of face-to-face for them because the woman herself is blind and hard of hearing. And so if I wasn't creating an experience that also welcomed her her types of seen and unseen disabilities into the space that I myself as a creator was not being doing my due diligence. Um, and as simple as knowing everyone's name in the space, that was a choice we made for face to face. I had every docent or every volunteer on an iPad, seeing every single person's name come in in real time. Um, and that was a choice we made to always address people by name. Um, to make sure people felt safe and comfortable in the home while the experience itself was getting a little uncomfortable and the subject matter was very disturbing and uncomfortable as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for that project, what were some of the values that uh, Sheffield was looking for in that application that made you stand out? Oh, I could go to like legitimate, like I even, I think I have the copy of it. It's like, it's like uh exposing innovation in the realms of immersive and interactive storytelling while staying to the heights of ethics, something like that, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Um, And I've done other experiences with onboarding, like, like the map and like other things. And there's very different onboarding that needs to happen with an iPad and a map or a VR headset in space but like yeah. with face-to-face it was so deep and visceral and immersive and you could really get caught up into it i wanted to make sure there were cushions on other end, either end even to the point where like where sheffield put us in the space i said i want there to be a quiet space that once they leave the dining room they could go to this back corner that i see that you have and we could call that space quiet reflective space you know yeah so yeah cool we could keep going, but I do want to respect time that we are already at 530. So I'm 
I've got like another five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, then let's just any, anything you want to leave viewers or listeners with, um, and we'll wrap it up. Um, I think that just, I think Mickey and I both touched on it. You know, it's the, what makes a good producer is, uh, for immersive experiences, whether you're working with brands or with anybody, it's just like asking questions of your partners and finding, um, finding what everyone is, what, what, what their problems are that you're trying to solve. Um, that kind of really makes you, it separates you from just a producer who's just crunching numbers and making sure. And the obvious everyone's goal is that your producer, your, your production doesn't, you know, come over budget into a, in a bad realm and that you're losing money, et cetera. Um, but that you're, you're making something great that it's solving a lot of people's problems, whether that's just the attendees, what the problem the attendee is, they want a cool story. They want something great. They want some cool content to take photos of. They want to feel something. If it's the venue's problems, um, if it's a, if it's a brand, you know, we want to get attention. We want to launch the product. We'll be able to have a better idea, a better feeling towards us, et cetera. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot of different things that your your work can solve for you to be able to ask the right questions and be looking and be thinking in a problem-solving manner. Yeah, I think it's really about if you want to be in this realm, you have to know how to collaborate and you have to know mm-hmm. how to listen. Yeah. And you also have to understand that it's not always going to be what you thought it would be unless you have that full directorial, full producerial, and full financial. And a trust like fund to boot to back it up. Like, then yeah. it's yours. Right. And I think, and I think, and Jake is, Jake is obviously super duper blessed to be able to work full-time salaried for a company and like do this all day, every day. But like, but like for people who are out there just starting this as a side hustle or a freelance or a passion project, like that's where Jake started and he was able to get there. I've been in full-time salary jobs. It's just not the right fit for me right now in my life. So I continue to be freelance for a reason, but like, that doesn't mean I, I do it all day, every day, but when I do do it, it is wonderful Mm -hmm. and I love it and I eat it up and I do it to the best of my ability. And that's basically like how you should always live your life is to the best of your ability, whether you're, whether you're like sitting here thinking about that side hustle that you have to do so that you can do the full-time job that you have to do to make the rent, like totally okay. Like you are where you are and you're validated for that. And you can move and push yourself to the direction you want to be pushed and moved to. If you allow yourself to have that time and energy to do the best you can, no matter where you're at. Cause who knows, maybe the restaurant, which is your side gig right now is the restaurant you end up partnering with for your immersive interactive dance piece. So true. Totally. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links to everything we talked about today, including where you can find our guests. We'll be releasing new episodes every other Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of them. And if you could rate and leave us a review, it'd be super helpful. You can also follow along on social media to get updates about the show and the work we're doing at Ruse. We're at Experience Ruse on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We want to hear from you how we can make this an even better resource. If you have a question or a topic that you'd like us to address on the show, or if you'd like to be a guest, head on over to experienceruse.co slash making immersive work and fill out our form. You'll also find a place to donate. If this podcast is helpful to you, please consider making a monthly donation, even if it's just a few dollars. Music in this episode is by Anant Sundara. Go to his website, sonictheater.com, 
check out his work, which includes original songs, orchestrations for films, and other custom compositions for pretty much any application you could think of. Just in case you missed it, I'm Christy Casey, founder of Ruse and your host for Making Immersive Work. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next episode. 